Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Last time on Whining About Herstory. <laughs> it feels like we need a recap because it's been a while. It has. But thank you so much for your patience and for sticking with us because we are back and alive <laughs> i was gonna say better than ever but i don't know if that's entirely true we're back the it's a new year weeks, <laughs> it's a new year we are recording this on january 1st 2021 Ooh. oh yeah the past couple weeks have been crazy there has been family medical problems there has been vomiting there has been a genuine case of spate cadet itis yeah so we are happy to be back we are ready to go, and we're ready to start off 2021 talking about some badass bitches. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. So Kelly and I are still doing the remote recording thing, so if our audio sounds a little different than normal, that's why. It shouldn't sound bad, though. Roll with it. Yeah, just roll with the punches like a grape on the vine just roll <laughs> um that doesn't sound right <laughs> no it's like you know the grapes that that fall off you know oh, it's like oh that, you're not gonna roll. be wine but you're yeah. gonna roll with it you know <laughs> decompose and add to the fertilization to exactly. grow the new vines there you go yeah, you're so fertilizing the next generation it's the circle of wine. <laughs> More like the circle uh, of dirt. <laughs> oh, my God. I want that shirt, though. The circle of wine. I need it. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to get right into this. We have some news to catch you up on, and uh, I figure our say their name would be the best place to do it. So our say their name today is... Kina of the Historical AF Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you don't follow us on social media, this is news to you. But if you do follow us on social media because you're the best, you've probably, you probably already know this and already listened. But uh, Historical AF is a, as Kina says, boozy and foul mouth comedy podcast hosted by historical goddess Kina, who is a literal master of history. Yeah, she's like, wonderful, though. She wrote her, uh, is it her dissertation? Yes. You're you're going for your master's, you yeah. know, uh, on asylums. I know. Because she's like she my favorite like, person next to you. I know. Aw, that's saying a lot. <laughs> so each month, Kina picks a theme and then has guests to discuss historical stories related to that theme. And she even uses categories such as like historical, morbid, funny. So people pick like one of those subcategories and then find a story that fits in with the theme and the subcategory and then tells a story. So it's always fresh. It's always different. And it's always funny. So Kina recently had us on as guests for episode 86 as part of, I think it was her part two oceans theme month. Yep. And the episode is titled stabby plantation burners and superstitious semen. And if you want to know what kind of semen we're talking about, you'll just have to listen to the episode. It was just an absolute blast. And if you guys like us, you are going to love Historical AF. And you can listen wherever you listen to us. So after this episode, go over, subscribe, like, comment, rate, review Historical AF because Kina's amazing. Yeah, she is. Like, she, it was so much fun to record with her. And she's, yeah, she's so welcoming. She's so sweet, crazy smart, just the best. 
And that's actually one of the things I've really enjoyed about this past year of podcasting. We've really gotten more into connecting and collaborating with our fellow history podcasters because we were on History's What If podcast. We were on Historical AF. We were on Hashtag History. Um, I did the Drive With Us podcast. Kelly, I know you've been on a bunch of different podcasts on your own. I've tried. Yeah, because you were on uh, Beyond the Rainbow. You uh, did the voiceover for a, a murderer. Yeah, just briefly. Yeah. Um, so seriously, guys, check that stuff out. It's amazing. I'm actually going to be creating a list or a collage or something of all of our guest spots as kind of a thank you for everyone who's had us on in 2020 and also as a guys, seriously, check them out because they're awesome. So, oh, was Earfloss this last year too? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was 2020 also. So, and we're so excited for this new year. We've got more stuff in the pipeline. We're uh, excited to be continuing our existing Patreon extras and to be doing more. Uh, So stay tuned because things are going to get hysterical and historical. Heck yeah. All right. So uh, since we're recording remote and it's like the middle of the afternoon, uh, Kelly, what are you drinking today? I am drinking strawberry crystal light. I'm not drinking anything exciting. I'm actually not drinking booze either. Uh, I debated opening one of our old wine bottles, but then I was (laughs) like, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. I, I did think about having some cranberry and fireball because uh, Jared knows how much I like fireball. So he got me like a little eight pack of mini bottles. Ooh. And and uh, so I got some cranberry juice. And that's actually what I had last night for New Year's Eve. But since it is the middle of the afternoon and I want the freedom to run errands later, I am having some like Welch's sparkling grape juice with cranberry juice in my Alice Ball glass. Yeah, I like that glass. Yeah, so I got that at the Science Museum of Minnesota, and Alice Ball is the woman who created the first, like, uh, vaccine for leprosy, and then she tragically died very young of just, like, natural causes, and then the president of the university decided to be like, I totally did this, man, I'm a dickhole, so... I covered her uh, during our first quarantine, and I love... Her story is, like, one of my favorites, so... I was very happy to see her getting some love from our local science museum. Right. Mm. And I also made this drink in my Mimosasaurus decanter that a friend of mine gave me for Christmas. (laughs) So I'm just, I'm truly thrilled. Living my best quarantine life right now. Heck yeah. Heck yes. All right. So Kelly. I get to go first. I say we cheers to the new year. Uh, my cup's plastic. I was going to say, I'm going to clink my glass and my plastic decanter. So, cheers! Oh, that was sad. I used my finger and it was sad. That was... Let me let me get my ring in there. Okay, we're good. Yeah, rings work better. Cranberry juice is, like, so underrated. It Apparently is truly the queen of juice. for, like, UTIs, isn't it? Isn't that like a thing? Yeah, actually, I made a joke to Jared because he was drinking it. I was like, no UTIs for you, I guess. <laughs> That's funny. He's like, yes. <laughs> He's like, I would hope not. Yeah, right. Uh, all right. All right. Ready? Well, Kelly, you are kicking us off. You are introducing us to the first woman of 2021. No pressure. 
Well, I already pre-wrote this, so <laughs> too bad. <laughs> um, so it today is what it is. Yeah, exactly. I'm covering Wangari Maathai. Wangari Maasai? Maathai. T-H. Thai. Oh, Maathai? Maathai. 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 Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. Let's do this for 10 more minutes. <laughs> Just me mispronouncing this poor woman's name. I know. Okay. I'm sorry. Maathai. Um, so Wangari was born on April 1st of 1940 in the village of Inhaithi in the Niri district of Kenya. So Kenya. Okay. I, I, I couldn't quite tell where we were going to end up in the world with that name. So yeah. now I feel more grounded. <laughs> like, right? Kenya, I know where that is. Her family is Kikuyu, which is like a specific tribe in Kenya. And it's actually the most populous ethnic tribe in Kenya. So her, she's far, she's a part of that. When she was about six, her family reload or not six, sorry, three. Thinking of my other story, people relocate a lot. <laughs> When she was about three, her family relocated to a white-owned farm where her dad had found work as a laborer. Um, so this was in the town of Nakuru, and her whole family moved there. But when she was seven, her mom and her two brothers and herself moved back to her original village because they had a primary school there, and this this new town didn't. So they moved back so her brothers could attend primary school. Um, her father remained at the farm, and they don't really go into you know what happened after that but that with within the next year she ended up joining her brothers at primary school so that's pretty sweet okay that's cool so they moved so the children could get an education yeah so they basically went back home so the children could get an education which is awesome parenting a plus exactly so at the age of 11 uh wangari was able to move to an intermediate primary school it was called saint cecilia so a catholic um, which was a boarding school and yet yeah, was run by catholic missionaries so she would go on to study at saint cecilia's for four years she became fluent in english converted to catholicism she became involved in the legion of mary which is the way I read it, because like their their motto was to serve God by serving fellow human beings. So it kind of sounds like a a low key nun, but like without the vows and stuff. Yeah, it, it, it's like I'm going to put good out into the world in the name of God or because that's what my religion is exactly. dictating. OK, help I, other I can people. get behind that. Right. Basically, I'm going to help other people because that's what God would want me to do. So while she was studying at St. Cecilia's back home, there was something called the Mau Mau Uprising, um, which forced her mother to move from their homestead to an emergency village set up in the province. So it was kind of like an uprising, I think, of a different tribe. I didn't read into it, but basically, like, yeah, it forced a bunch of people out of their homes. But because she was away at boarding school, like, she heard about it, but she wasn't directly affected. Yeah. Okay. So she would go on to complete her studies at St. Cecilia's and gain admission to the only Catholic high school in Kenya for girls. Wow. Yep. It was named Loretta Loretto High School, and it was in Lamuru, Kenya. So she went there. She moved to go there. And during this time while she was learning in high school, this was kind of toward the end of East African colonialism, like, you know... Stuff was kind of, they were starting to get their own independence, you know, stepping away from other countries. And during this time, Kenyan politicians were trying to find ways to make education more accessible to Kenyans, particularly like 
Western education, like, hey, let us send our really promising students to you for you to teach them, basically. So they're trying to, like, okay. you know, get their students out in the world. And John F. Kennedy, who was then a set, he was a senator. He wasn't president yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so when he was a senator, he actually agreed to fund the program through something known as the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation. And this program became known as either the Kennedy Airlift or the Airlift Africa. That's a, like that was kind of the shortened term for this. Okay. I I wonder if that's named after I'm I'm trying to think of the Kennedy family line because I think it was the oldest son Joe Jr. was killed while serving in World War II. I believe so. so I, I wonder think if that's, that's who what named the foundation is named after because yeah. I believe he was a pilot. So then the airlift thing kind of oh, cool. comes into yeah. play. Yeah. So Wangari became one of 300 Kenyans selected to study in the United States in September of 1960. So they started this program kind of while she was in high school, and then she got selected to go because she was a really good student. Yeah, she's smart as hell. Right? So in particular, she actually received a scholarship to study at the Mount St. Scholastica College in Atchison, Kansas. So that's cool. I've actually heard of Mount St. Scholastica. I didn't know it was in Kansas. I I was just going to say, I didn't know it was in Kansas. I've never heard of that town in Kansas. Like, maybe it's one of those that have, like, a few different locations and this is just like yeah one of their campuses so she went there and she studied biology that was her major and she took minors in chemistry and german because why not learn another language there you go <laughs> so she received her bachelor's of science in four years so 1964 and then she went on to study at the university of pittsburgh to get her master's degree in biology so that's cool what was even cooler is her studies were actually founded by the Africa America Institute. So like they paid for her to go like continue her her degree, which I think is awesome. That's such an incredible opportunity. Yeah, right. Um, and then so during this time in Pittsburgh, she experienced her first environmental restoration project, which becomes a huge thing later in her life. So she witnessed uh, local environmentalists pushing to get rid of the city of rid the city of air pollution which i'm pretty sure they're all like rolling over in their grid well maybe not now because covid has really like cut down on air pollution but yeah. pre-covid they were probably like rolling over in their graves uh, um so wangari did go on to receive her ms in biological sciences she graduated with her master's and right away was appointed a position in as a research assistant to a professor in zoology back in the university college of nairobi so she gets to go back to kenya right nairobi Nairobi's in Kenya, right? That is an excellent question, and I think we should look it up. Yeah, it's the capital of Kenya. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I- I'm pretty sure it's in Kenya, but then I was like, crap, is Nairobi like another country? I feel bad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If it makes our listeners Africa. feel better, I am equally ignorant about all countries right? <laughs> in the world, including my own. <laughs> Upon returning, Wangari dropped her forename which was actually never mentioned in any of the articles i read um like so she must have had like an americanized name that they never mentioned because now it says she dropped her forename preferred to be known by her birth name wangari muta which i'm like they never talked about a different name oh so maybe when she entered the program and went to the united states she had an americanized name that she yeah and they never mentioned and then she's it. like Guys, we're not fucking doing this. Let's. And actually, that's kind of cool that that's not the name that she is known by now because she's like, no, 
I don't want to be called that name. And everyone's like, cool, you should totally have control over what your name is and what people call you. And that's right? and basic like, no, I'm respect. sticking with my birth name. Screw you. Yeah. So when she showed up at the university to start her new job, she was informed that her job had been given to somebody else. Oh, my God. Yep. What? She believes that I have this- a new I have a new fear. Yeah, showing up. I and have a new go. anxiety. Like yeah. when, when you start your first day of a new job, you have all of this anxiety, all of this stress. But I would never have imagined showing up and having a possibility of being like, you don't actually have this job. I'm sure we they can't do that anymore. Else. But yeah, that would that would suck. Oh my god. Um. So yeah, she got told that it had been given to someone else. She believes that this is because of gender and tribal bias. Like, so a combination of, like, you're from a different tribe and you're a woman. Yeah. It took her a two-month-long job search before she was offered a different research assistant position by Professor Reinhold Hoffman, who was a German from the University of Geisen, but he was studying at the University College of... Like, he was guest professoring in Nairobi. Guest stressoring. Yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) Um, And so he offered her a job to be his research assistant in microanatomy. Microanatomy. Yep. And this was actually a new uh, department that had just been established at the University College of Nairobi. It was the Department of Veterinary Anatomy. So it was microanatomy. I don't know what microanatomy. Small anatomy pieces. I was going to say, instead of looking at the bi as a whole, you look at like one part of the finger and yeah. like what makes up that bone in the finger and the little vessels in there and yeah there you go so while she was going to while she was being this research assistant she met Mwangi Mathai um, who was another Kenyan who had actually also studied in America on the same program she did and they became very close and became really good friends she would all she also rented a small shop during this time and established a small general store to provide her sister's work so she's, you know, she Aww. she had some money coming in, so she was able to just establish a little thing to get, you know, her sisters doing stuff, which is neat. Well, and what's so cool is that she had this incredible opportunity to pursue her education. Right. Someone else paid for it, you know, that that, that would have been out of reach otherwise. And now she's using what she's learned, her position, what she's achieved to help support her sisters you know right like she she's passing it on she's keeping it going i can't imagine she's getting paid a ton to be a research assistant but like right you know, she's still paying it back basically which is awesome yeah oh i love her yeah right so during the next year with her of her tenure with uh professor hoffman he actually urged her to travel to Germany to actually go to the University of Geisen, like where he was an actual professor, and pursue a doctorate. He's like, you're super smart. You should go for your doctorate, you know, like finish your education. So she did. She went to she went to Geisen University and in tandem also studied at the University of Munich to get her to, you know, work on her doctorate. So she's get going to two universities to get her doctorate yep to work like to i think she's doing it like in tandem you know like classes at both potentially okay damn right i can barely handle handle going to one university let alone two in fucking germany 
Exactly. Um, in the, so in 1969, she returned to Nairobi to continue her studies at the University College of Nairobi and work as an assistant lecturer. So she's still working on her doctorate. She hasn't gotten it yet. In May, the Mwangi Mathai, who she had met earlier and become good friends with, they married. And later that same year, she became pregnant with their first child. During this time, her husband campaigned for a seat on parliament, losing only by a, like a few votes. However, also during this time, um, Tom Maboya, who had been really instrumental in founding the program that sent her and her husband to America, was assassinated. (gasps) And this led to the president of Kenya basically like ending any like multi-democracy in Kenya. Like he was like, nope, we're not going to reach out to other states. We're not going to like we're going to just be our own nation by ourselves. Which oh, is, so kind of the the international programs that they were doing. He's like, nope. Yeah, nope, he's like, we're no, done. we're done. Yeah, which more is isolationist sh- policies. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Yep. But then she had her son, who they named Waweru, which I think is an, I think she kind of like that name. And then after she had her son, she became the first Eastern African woman to receive her PhD doctorate in veterinary anatomy. From nice. the col- University College of Nairobi. I guess I don't know if it's ever, but, you know, she received it. And she she did her dissertation on the development of the differentiation of gonads in bovines. So she's studying cow genitalia. Yeah. I love her. Right. And she happened to finish her dissertation while she was pregnant with her daughter, who was born later that year, named Wanjira. So she's just kicking ass, kicking ass and having babies. I was babies. gonna say she's like living her best life. She's married to another highly intelligent, driven individual who seems sounds like he supports her. She's having the children she wants. She's pursuing her education. She's reading all about that cowcock. Like she is killing it. It's not cowcock. It's cow balls. Sorry bovine balls (laughs) there you go so wangari continued to teach at nairobi even after she had her children and went on to kick more ass and obtain three positions that women in nairobi had never had in as many years so she became a senior lecturer in anatomy the chair of the department of veterinary anatomy and then associate professor one right after the other each year, basically, she just achieved she's, a new high. She's got a bingo card and she's like knocking them out. And she's like, right? I'm going to make a smiley face with my achievements. And she's like, I'm <laughs> fucking going for a blackout. Blackout, motherfuckers. Right? <laughs> I to run this school. Right. And so this whole time while she's teaching, she's also campaigning for equal benefits for women working on the staff of the university. She actually went so far as to try to like form a staff union you know, to be able to negotiate benefits better. However, the courts denied it. But later it did it did come to fruition, just not this first time she tried it. So, you know, she's doing other good things too. So in addition to all of that, she also became involved in a, several um, civic organizations, uh, like within Kenya. Um, she was a m- member of the Nairobi branch of the Kenya Red Cross Society and would actually go on to become its director. She was a member of the Kenya Association of University Women. So, you know, that one's self-explanatory. No, no, no. I'm sorry. You have to explain that to me because I don't think I can put it together with the context clues and the words that came yeah, out right. of your mouth. <laughs> just those words together don't make any sense to me. Women? 
Like, <laughs> right. University women. No, that's that's not right. Is that an oxymoron? No. <laughs> Following I'm like, these... when did I become the misogynist? Yeah, right. <laughs> right now. This this was the moment. <laughs> 2020 is my year to reject feminism. <laughs> right. God damn. That's funny. Did I say 2020 or 2021? You said 2020, but that's fine. Okay, well, we're living <laughs> thank in God the past. It's not that year anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, good. That was quick. Yeah. <laughs> so, when her local government established an environmental liaison center, she was asked, like, so she didn't even campaign. She was asked to become a member of the local board and then eventually became the board chair. So, what this center did was it worked to promote the participation of like non government organizations. So, you know, like local ones or, you know, things not as not associated with the government that works worked on the environment, basically. Okay, so like private organizations. Yeah. And it was in tandem with the United Nations Environmental Program, um, which had recently established uh, like a base in Nairobi. And so like they were working in tandem with the United Nations, which is awesome. And then she would also go on to help or to join the National Council of Women in Kenya. And through her, all of these various volunteer associations, she it became very evident to her that a lot of Kenya's problems stemmed from like environmental degradation and not being able to get water and, you know, desertification, which is like when, you know, when streams and stuff dry up and suddenly these towns that existed because there's a river there have no water. They can't be sustained. Exactly. So she's having, she's realizing that there's a lot, a lot of problems in Kenya are stemming from environmental causes, basically. So desertification is not an overwhelming amount of desserts. No, that would be awesome. Damn, that would be, can I, desertification 2021. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. So in as she's doing all this in 1974, she had another child, another son named Muta, and her husband once again decided to campaign for a seat in parliament and actually won this time. Oh, good for him. And during his campaign, he had promised to find jobs to try and limit the rising unemployment problem that Kenya was having. And this actually led to Wangari, like, connecting some of her environmental restoration ideas, like, into her husband's campaign, basically. So she founded EnviroCare LTD, or Limited, um, which was a business that involved planting trees to conserve the environment. So basically, what it did is it involved ordinary people... Just people out in the world planting trees to try and save the environment. Because, like, one of the things you can do is, like, plant trees along dried stream beds and the trees will find water, like, underground water. And then you can kind of, like, recycle it from the tree. It's a it's a whole thing. Okay. Okay. I, I'm just going to trust you. Yep. I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> That's the way like to go. Like, that grape off the vine, I'm going to roll with You're it. You're going to roll with it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, her founding this EnviroCare led to her planting her first tree nursery side by side with a government tree nursery in the Karura Forest. EnviroCare would go on to run multiple programs or not programs, problems, go on to oh. encounter multiple problems, primarily dealing with like funding. They couldn't, you know, like this was kind of the be- uh, beginning of an environmental movement. So, um, you know, people weren't into it yet. No so, one gave a shit. No one understood why it's important to plant trees exactly so envirocare wasn't successful and the project failed 
However, this led to a lot of conversations concerning EnviroCare and like the work that she was doing. And then the United Nations Environmental Protection Agency, which I mentioned above, actually like kind of heard about what she was doing and decided to send her to the first UN conference on human settlement settlements, like and how they affect the world. So she was sent to what was known as Habitat One in June of 1976. So she's like going to United Nations shit and she's like basically a nope. I mean, she's a PhD person, but like other than that, so that's pretty cool. So once she returned from Habitat One, she would go on to speak around Kenya about like her attendance to Habitat One and kind of like what was discussed there. She once again proposed further tree planting. And at this time, the council of the state like was like, yeah, no, okay, we should actually like do this. Like, this is a thing. Trees are important. Right. So starting on June 5th, 1977, which was World Envi- is World Environment Day, or at least that year it was, this council and her marched in procession from the Kenyatta International Conference Center in downtown, downtown Nairobi to Kamuja... Kunji Park, which is on the outskirts of Nairobi, so that like this whole council and her like marched from this one area to this other area and then planted seven trees to honor historical community leaders. I hope they carried the trees with them. I really hope so too. Just like Like everyone's got a sapling and they're like pumping them up in the air, like trees, trees are people too. Like That's funny. So this was the first event in what would become known as the Green Belt Movement, which I'll talk more about. Okay. Okay. So after that event, Wangari really started encouraging particularly the women of Kenya to start planting tree nurseries throughout the country. What What she told them to do or what she recommended was search nearby forests for seeds to trees that are already native, you know, go find, you know, stuff that you know is going to grow and then, you know, plant it somewhere else. And she actually agreed to pay these women a small stipend for each seedling that was planted elsewhere. And then that supports the economic development of women in the country, kind of like how she was helping her sisters out. That's amazing. And it's helping the environment, you know. So it's a little bit I guess money does grow on trees. (laughs) First bad joke of 2021 i know i need to work on my bad jokes that'll be my goal for 2021 to match you in puns and bad jokes we actually got a message from kina uh she she sent us a screenshot she got a message from one of her listeners who listened to the episode we did on historical af and she's like i loved emily's puns and i'm like i'm glad someone can appunciate them i missed you saying that and i'm kind of glad i missed you saying terrible Oh, it's it was okay. Terrible. It's it's part of my everyone prefers Emily, but her puns are kind of ridiculous. So I'll give they are. And you know what though, I say them with confidence. <laughs> that is true. It's all about confidence, guys. All right, let's keep going. I have a long story to go. Yeah, you got what ten pages? I mean, we're on page three. Oh shit! Seriously? <laughs> yeah, I'll talk faster. So in the book she would later write, write called Replenishing the Earth's Spiritual Values for Healing Ourselves and the World, that is the title of the book, Wangari actually would go on to discuss the impact the Green Belt Movement would have. And she says, quote, the importance of communities taking responsibility for their actions and mobilizing to address their local needs. So like that's what it was about. 
And then she said, quote, we all need to work hard to make a difference in our neighborhoods, regions and countries and in the world as a whole. This means making sure we work hard, collaborate with each other and make ourselves better agents to change. I love her. I know. She's kind of great. After this, Wangari and her husband, Mwangi, uh, separated. And then after a lengthy separation of about two years, he filed for divorce. And this is where I'm like, you're a terrible person because he said, or he was, he, he was said. So like, you know, he said, she said. He but was I, reported he, as saying. Yes. That Wangari was, quote, too strong minded for a woman and that he was unable to control her. In addition to naming her as cruel, he publicly accused her of adultery with another member of parliament, which in turn was thought to have caused his high blood pressure. So the judge ruled in his favor. What? Yeah, if that's not super sexist, I I don't know what, what is. What the fuck? Yep. Oh my god, I I'm so disappointed. After the trial, she went on to talk to a magazine and refer to the judge as either incompetent or corrupt, which would then go on to the judge uh, charging her with contempt of court, which she was found guilty of and sentenced to six months in jail. (laughs) I know. Oh, my God. She was sentenced to six months in jail. But then after three days, uh, her lawyer formulated a statement which the courts found sufficient for her release. I don't know what that statement is. I couldn't find it. Y'all are dumb. Um, <laughs> that was the statement. Right? Exactly. And then when she when she got out of jail and shortly thereafter, her husband, her former husband, sent her a letter via his lawyer demanding that Wangari change her name, like drop his last name. So she just added an extra A. Oh my god. So she his, his is last the name was Ma- Queen. I know. His his last name was Mathai. M A T H A I. Her last name is Maathai, so it's M-A-A-T-H-A-I. Oh, my God. I love her. I do, too. However, the divorce was really costly, and with the lawyer's fee and then the loss of her husband's income, she found it really hard to provide for her and her three children on the wages she was making at the university. She did find an opportunity at the Economic Commission for Africa, again, through the United Nations. Um, However, this job required extended travel throughout Africa and was actually mainly based in Zambia, not Kenya. So she couldn't bring her children with. However, probably to give her children a better life, she chose to send them to her her ex-husband and take the job. She would go on to visit them regularly, but they, they continued to live with their father for a while. That's got to be such a rough decision, you know? It's oh, like, I can't I even imagine. The, the best shot, and unfortunately, that's living with my bastard ex-husband. Right. Yeah, I know. I really, I really wanted him to come out as like, I'm an intelligent, I know, before you, like, he's intelligent. doesn't present my wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're, you're just sitting here like, oh, Emily, you don't even know. <laughs> I mean, part of it, unfortunately, is cultural norms in certain countries. You know, they still have those really strong cultural norms where the men are in charge. And it is I mean, it even, is. even here, you know, it's like, oh, I want a woman to be smart as long as she's not smarter than me. Right. Or... <laughs> Someone, I don't know, it was someone famous. I don't even remember who it was now. And like someone I don't know, but famous. And they were talking, like he posted on Twitter of like what he was looking for in a woman. And like the last line was intelligent, but not boring. And I'm like, you know, those two things aren't synonymous, right? Like, yeah. But yeah, I laughed. Anyways, so while she was 
So while she was going on to, you know, travel with the United Nations, she also um, ran for the position of chairperson of the National Council of Women of Kenya, or the NCWK, which is an umbrella organization consisting of like a lot of the women's organizations across the country. So she got that, which is cool. However, a new president of Kenya had been elected named Daniel Arap Moy, and he very, very much tried to limit the amount of influence that the Kikuyu, which is her tribe, and remember, the biggest ethnic group in Kenya. Yeah. But he really wanted their ethnicity to not have as much influence as they had, basically. So he was like, no, I'm in charge. And so I'm assuming he was from a different tribe. I didn't look into him because he just sounds like an asshole. Yeah, I I don't know. Anytime you're like, "Mm, I don't know, this ethnicity, I don't like them and I want to kneecap them or whatever. It's like, oh, we're we're treading on some dangerous territory, aren't we, sir? Right. And he, I mean, he even went so far as to like try and do that with volunteer civic organizations. So, So remember, she was running for the NCWK chairperson. She lost by three votes, but was overwhelmingly chosen to be the vice chair and then the following year, she ran again, and she and she believes that both times that it was due to government oppositions that she lost. Okay. Um, however, when she ran a third the third time, it became apparent that she was going to win. A woman named Mandelo Ya Wanawake, uh, who was like I said, another member of it, and she represented like a lot of Kenya's rural women and they were close to Arap Moy, the president. So she withdrew from the NCWK. Wangari was elected chairman like they knew she would. However, a lot of the funds that were supposed to kind of go through the NCWK to be spread out through organizations went to Wanawake because she was like the rural women. So, you know, they probably need more money. But that means that it left the NCWK basically bankrupt and now you know Wangari's ahead of it and so she's like I don't know what to do so basically what she did is she increased the focus on on the environment and basically made its present more known its work more known so you know it kind of changed directions a little but it's like she did what she could with what she was given yeah yeah she's she's making the best of it right and she would actually go on to be reelected as chairman of the organization every year until she retired which was in wow which was like 6 or 7 years later. It really sucks though how much like political nonsense is going into just like supporting women and taking care of the environment. Oh, it gets so much worse. Like I I can't imagine why those are such decisive topics. Why those it are gets, so controversial. It gets so much worse. Okay, are we are we going into a hole? Strap in and strap on, Emily. Oh no. <laughs> I don't want to. So in 1982, a parliamentary seat opened in her home region in Kenya. And so she was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to try and get on to parliament. So as required by law, she resigned from the university because apparently you have to do that in Kenya to run for parliament. I wonder if it's like a conflict of interest situation. Maybe. I don't know. Um, So the courts decided that she was ineligible to run for office because she had not re-registered to vote in the last presidential election. So... She believed that this was false and illegal and brought the matter back to court. The court was to meet at nine in the morning and she had to deliver her papers by three in the afternoon. So she's like, I can do this. Um, However, the judge disqualified her from running on a technicality. So they didn't let her run anyways. 
And then when she went to request her job back, she was denied. And because she was living in university housing, she was evicted. Oh, my God. It kind of seems like... Like, I, I hate to use this term because it's so cliche, but the man is literally coming after her. Yeah, no, she just like. They just don't like that was her. so bad. Oh, my fucking God. That's bullshit. Luckily, she had purchased a small, like, home slightly outside of the city some years earlier. Probably, like, too small for her family, which is why she wasn't living there. But she, she was able to move into the small home that she had purchased and began focusing on the NCWK more because that's really all she had at this point. Yeah. So during this time, she actually had the opportunity to partner with the executive director of the Norwegian Forestry Society, Wilhelm Elsrud. So that's kind of cool. You know, getting some international influence in there. Yeah. So this partnership really blossomed and Wangari became like the coordinator between the two entities, the NCWK and the Norwegian Forestry Society. And this movement also began to get more seed money from the United Nations Voluntary Fund for Women, which made her able to expand her movement within Kenya and hire additional people to oversee operations. So they were, and they were able to continue paying women to plant seeds. And then they also, she refined it to be able to pay a small stipend for uh, women's husbands and sons who were literate and able to keep accurate records of the women planting seeds. So like she oh, would pay the cool. women, but then if the, if the husbands and sons were like, yeah, okay, you know, she planted this many seeds in this area and they were able to like track it more accurately, they would also get more money. Oh, that, yeah. And I mean, what what is the reason to not do that? You're making money and helping the environment. It's like the dream. Right. And then she's supporting, because I assume the people who are playing these seeds are probably like rural, poor, oh, yeah. don't have a lot of opportunities. You mentioned that they were, they might have been illiterate. And so- Well, and they're probably having the people this... affected by these environmental causes, you know, because they're exactly. the ones that are going to want to do it. But you're supporting them and helping them kind of help themselves. Right. So when the UN held the third global women's conference, and it happened to be held in Nairobi, Wangari- arranged a lot of the seminars and she arranged presentations to describe the work that she had been doing this green belt movement with planting seeds and stuff and so she escorted delegates to see the nurseries that the women were planting you know had the delegates plant their own trees she would go on to meet some other very very powerful women including Peggy, Peggy Snyder who was the head of the United Nations it's Unifem which I can't it's like United Nations, something, female, something, something. But she's a big name. Um, and then she would he, she'd also meet Helvia Sipilla, who was the first woman appointed as a UN Assistant Secretary General. So she's meeting all of these other badass women, basically. Yeah. And then they form their own, like, vigilante crime-fighting force, and they clean up yeah. the mean streets of the world. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. This conference also helped expand funding for the Green Melt move. Greenbelt movement even further and actually led to the Greenbelt movement becoming established outside of Kenya. So like other countries started doing this. So they expanded throughout Africa at first, which led to the foundation of something called the Pan-African Greenbelt Network. So like they're expanding beyond Kenya. And then 45 representatives from 15 different African countries traveled to Kenya over the course of the next three years to learn how to set up programs in their own countries. So she taught them how to combat desertification, deforestation, water crises, rural hunger, you know, because obviously it's like, yeah, if you plant these certain trees that grow these fruit, 
you can help these communities not, you know, like not be as hungry. So like yeah. she was teaching all of this stuff and it, that led to Wangari being honored with numerous awards and like it was a lot of, you know, attention. However, the government of Kenya wasn't super happy about it and they actually demanded that the Green Belt Movement and the NCWK, you know, that Wangari had been heading, yep. sep- separated because they believed that the NCWK should be focused on so- like women's issues, not the environment, which I understand. So Wangari would go on... helping women to help the environment. Right, exactly. So Wangari just, and she, you know, she did what she did and um, she stepped down as chairperson of the NCWK and focused solely on the Green Belt Movement, which was a non-government organization. So she was like, fine, whatever. Like, I don't want to deal with you anyways. Yeah, it kind of, I don't know, like, I, I understand maybe where they were coming from with that. But with everything else they've done, it sounds like they were just trying to stick it to her because they were assholes. Oh, yeah. No, we're still we're still in the it, get, it gets worse. We're still digging. <laughs> we're still. in. The, yeah. So in the in the latter half of the 1980s. The Kenyan government, once even once they separated from the N, what was it, NCWA, uh, came down really hard against Wangari and the Green Belt movement. So at this time, Kenya was a single party regime and they really didn't want democratic rights like they were super opposed to it. And so what they did is they invoked a colonial era law prohibiting groups of more than nine people from meeting without a government license. And they invoked that against the Green Belt movement. What the fuck? Um, the Greenbelt movement, you know, they did what they could and they actually went on to carry out pro-democracy activities such as helping people register to vote, pressing for constitutional reform and freedom of expression. And Wangari believes that in that in that election, the 1988 election, that the government carried out electoral fraud in order to maintain power. So that's what she thinks. I probably wouldn't doubt it, to be honest. Yeah, it sounds like they're sketchy, right? The year after that, she Wangari learned of plans to construct a 60-story uh, complex in Uhura Park. And the complex was intended to house, like, the Kenya Times newspaper, offices, a trading set, just a whole bunch of, like, random crap, and then a parking garage, of course. The, it also included a large statue of the president, you know, Daniel Arap Moy, who we all love. <laughs> she So when she heard about this, she went on to write many letters like she wrote to the president she wrote to like everybody in government she actually would go on to write to people like in europe and germany and like all these places she had been basically being like they're gonna destroy this park to build a shopping center essentially you know like this is literally out of that song exactly was it like you kill paradise to Uh, put up a parking parking lot yeah that's funny So the government refused to respond to any of her inquiries and protests, of course, and they actually started calling her a, quote, crazy woman. They denied that the project was going to take more than anything more than just a small portion of the public land and proclaimed the project as a fine and magnificent work of architecture opposed only by the ignorant few. So like they're I'm laying sorry, it on whenever thick someone is saying crazy woman, just assume they're an asshole. Just right? fucking assume. So they they would go on, the government would go on to express outrage for her actions, complaining of her letters to foreign organizations and calling the Greenbelt movement a bogus organizations and its members a bunch of divorcees. I what? <laughs> yep. Man, they're they getting actually, old, old school with oh, yeah. the with the feminist throwdowns like yep. they actually went so far as suggesting that if Wangari was so comfortable writing to Europeans, perhaps she should go live in Europe. 
uh, I love that whole if you don't like it, get out mentality. Right. It's like, fucking, can we just all agree that's shitty and knock it off? Yeah. So despite her protests, as well as other pro like popular protests that were beginning to grow in the city, the ground was broken at Yuhura Park. Or, yeah. Yuhuru. I don't know how to pronounce it. But so they, they broke ground for the construction project in November of ni- 1989. Wangari sought out an injunction in the high court to stop it, but the case was thrown out because, of course. And in his first public public comments pertaining to it, the president said, those who objected his project had insects in their heads. Insects? Like bugs? Insects in their head. That that is his insult. Insects. Insects. Wow. Insects like bugs. I will say, like, I, I'm sure this was so frustrating for Wangari, but, like, how cool is it that this wo- this woman is such a thorn in the president's paw? I know. You I know, like, it. just this one woman who's just trying to plant some trees is just the president's worst fucking nightmare. <laughs> yeah, right. So that that was his first statement on it. And then in, a, in another speech that he gave actually in the park... Um, it was a speech celebrating independence from the British. He suggested that Wangari be a proper woman in the African tradition and respect men and be quiet. He's like a comical, misogynistic supervillain. Oh, yeah. Like if you wrote that character, people would be like, guys, that that's just super heavy handed. It's too much. It's not it's realistic. Yeah. Like no one talks like that. No, they fucking do. Oh my the gov- god. Yep, the government would go on to force Swangari out of her office and the Green Belt movement was moved into her home. The government then audited the Green Belt movement in an apparent attempt to shut it down. However, they kept strong and um actually all her protests, the government's response to her protests, and then all the media coverage garnered by both of those things did lead to foreign investors pulling out of the project. Yeah! So the project did get canceled, yeah. Oh, that's awesome! Right? So as the next election, I was like, I guess it would be an election, approached, it came to the intention of Wangari and other pro-democracy activists that the government was compiling a list of people to assassinate and that basically the government was sponsoring a coup, essentially, although they were in charge, so I don't really know if it would be called a coup. But but they were basically going to quash this stuff so they could maintain power. Yeah, you know, they were going to pull a... Oh, God, what was his name? Stalin? Who just like oh, make yeah. people disappear? Yeah, Wangari found out that her name was on the list, and the po- there was there was a pro democracy group known as the Forum for the Restoration of Democracy or Ford, and like they also found out about it. So they presented information to the media, being like, you know, the government's basically trying to kill off anyone that opposes them. You know, we should hold a general election and try to get you know like if they're gonna do that we shouldn't let them be in power kind of a thing we probably shouldn't vote for the people trying to murder us yeah so they released those statements and later that day wangari received a warning that one of the members of ford had been arrested so she was like oh shit like if they're arresting them they're gonna come after me so she decided to barricade herself in her house like she put bars on her windows she was like fuck that they're not getting me and good thing she did, because shortly thereafter, police arrived and surrounded her home. Oh, my God. She was besieged for three days before the police cut the bars out of her windows, came in and arrested her. Oh, one guard. If this ends with an assassination, I'm going to be pissed. No, it doesn't. 
don't let's not start 2021 that way i cannot no, i wouldn't it. that would be mean <laughs> so she and the other pro-democracy activists who had been arrested were all charged with spreading malicious rumors sedition and treason they only were in jail for a day and a half before they were brought to a hearing and then released on bail a variety of international organizations and eight senators including al gore and edward kennedy you know people found out about this and they all put pressure on the kenyan government to substantiate the charges and like be like okay why why are you arresting all these pro-democracy people like what did they actually do yeah like you need to fucking make this legit (laughs) yeah and it was basically like give us a reason or us as the united states are basically not going to be happy with you like you will we will not have relations country to country with you anymore and so the kenya government ended up dropping the charges instead of substantiating them they were like uh never mind um so she was released on bail and her and others took part in a hunger strike in a corner of Uhuru Park, which they labeled Freedom Corner, which was previously the one that they were going to build the shopping mall on. Yep. So they did this hunger strike in order to pressure the government to release other political prisoners. Four days into the hunger strike, the police forcibly removed the protesters. Wangari and three others were knocked unconscious by police and hospitalized. The president would call her their president, not ours. <laughs> would call her a mad woman and a threat to order and security in the country. And then he, under his breath, coughed, slut. <laughs> yeah, right? J- just, just to put the cherry on. Yeah, 100%. Um, the attack drew international criticism. The U.S. State Department was deeply concerned by the violence and the forcible removal of hunger strikers. When the prisoners were not released, the protesters, mostly mothers of those in prison, moved their protests to the All Saints Cathedral, uh, which was across the street from the park they had previously been protesting in. The protests, ooh, the protests continue not necessarily with like a hunger strike, but just protests. They continued until early 1993, so almost a year later, um, when the prisoners were finally released. And Wangari would contribute frequently to these different protests they were holding so during this time even though she was over there getting arrested she was also being recognized with various awards internationally because of her work with the green belt movement so you know and the kenyan government was not happy with that (laughs) um so she would go to san francisco to receive the goldman environmental prize she won the hunger projects africa prize for leadership which was in london CNN aired a three-minute segment about her prize. However, when that episode of CNN aired in Kenya, they cut out that segment about her. Oh, dicks. So during one of the months of the protest, her and the the president traveled separately both to Rio de Janeiro for the UN Conference on Environmental Development. So they went to the same conference and the Kenyan government and the president accused her of inciting women and encouraging them to strip at Freedom Corner, urging her not to be allowed to speak, which of course that didn't happen. Like he did allow, like he didn't, she didn't encourage them to strip. I, I was going to say like, they, so they, he tried to be like, cherry. yeah. <laughs> She, he tried to be like, don't let her speak. And they uh, they were like, yeah, no, she's the chief spokesperson at this summit. God, he just comes off like the most petty, insecure son of a bitch. And yeah. she's getting all this praise and love because everyone else doesn't have their head up their ass. And they're like, no, she's doing good things. She's pro-democracy. She's planting trees. And then her getting praise makes him look like even more of an asshole. Right. He should and just I love it. it. Like, I, I hope every time she accepted an award, she's like, I dedicate this to President Fuckface or whatever yeah, right. <laughs> for making this possible by being such an incredible douche. 
1992, Kenya her- Kenya held its first multi-party election. Wow. 92. Uh, Wangari strove to unite all the oppositions for like for fair elections in Kenya against the current government. Basically, she was like, guys, we need to band together to get them out of power because Ford, the the restoration of democracy group that I had talked about earlier, had split into two different groups. And then there was the vice president who had split into his own group to form the Democratic Party. And then there was the the Kenya Africa National Union which what who was it that was who was in charge now so basically there were there was four different parties and Wangaru was like okay the three that are against the other one we should all be one and get them out of power yeah so she formed the middle ground group that's what she formed in order to unite everyone um she was chosen to serve as chairperson they also formed the movement for free and fair elections which was like a, a sub That was just like an election, you know, helping people be informed and vote, basically. However, uh, despite their efforts, the opposition did not unite. So the Kanu party was able to use intimidation and state held media to continue retaining its control of parliament, basically. Uh, I I always hate that where it's like, hey, we all have the same goal, but I'm going to undercut you and you and then nothing's going to change. Exactly. The following uh. year was absolutely rife with ethnic clashes throughout Kenya, and Wangari believed that they were incited by the government because the government had warned of consequences to multi-party democracy. So, you know, she believes that they're inciting stuff to basically be like, look, democracy doesn't work because none of us agree anymore. Um, so she and her friends traveled with press to the areas of violence in order to, in order to encourage them to cease fighting. She... Uh, wrapped in the Greenbelt movement with this and planted trees for peace. Of course, the government began opposing her actions again. The conflict areas were labeled as no-go zones, meaning, you know, they weren't allowing anyone to travel there. The president said that Wangari was a mastermind that distributed leaflets inciting the Kikuyus, which is her tribe, to attack other tribes. No, she's just distributing leaves, guys. Leaves. Leaves. One of her close friends, Dr. Makanga, was kidnapped and she was she took that as a sign that she should go, you know, into hiding. Yeah. Oh, God. While in hiding, she was invited to a meeting in Tokyo of the Green Cross International, which was a different environmental organization. Um, However, she responded that she couldn't attend as she did not believe the government would allow her to leave the country and she was in hiding. The leader of the Green Cross International pressured the the Kenya government to allow Wangari to travel freely. And of course, the president responded with, you know, we're not limiting her. She can leave whenever she wants. But of course, you know, they were just not officially. Yeah. I, the, the second she shows up at that airport for her flight, someone's going to have something to say about it. Right. Exactly. So she uh, he responded too late for her to travel to Tokyo, but she was able to fly to Scotland to receive a medal and then to Chicago to receive the Jane Addams International Women's Leadership Award. Wow. She also went on to attend the UN's World Conference on Human Rights, which I feel is appropriate. Yeah. So 1997 rolls around, which means time for the next election. So again, she was like, okay, guys, we need to unite in order to get this asshole out of, you know, like... No more fucking around. I don't right. care who said what. You all need to grow the hell up and we need to get this done. Right. So in November, so I think they hold 
elections kind of like we do. They vote. And then the next year, you know, the new government takes over. Yeah. So less than two months before the election, she decided to run for parliament and for president as a candidate of the Liberal Party. Her intentions were widely questioned in the press, and many believe she should simply stick to running the Green Belt movement. On the day of the election, a rumor was spread that Wangari had withdrawn and endorsed another candidate, so she garnered few votes and lost the election. Oh, that's bullshit. Right. So in 1998, once again, the government decided to be a dick and... Wangari learned that they were trying to privatize large lands of the Karura Forest, which is just outside of Nairobi, and give it to political supporters. So they're not even trying to build a mall this time. They're just like, no, we're going to give it to people that like us. Yeah. And that was the forest that she had helped plant trees in, right? Yep. Previously, alongside the government. Yeah. Probably. I think it was the president before this one, though. Yeah. You know. So... Obviously, once she found out about that, she started protesting again through letters to the government and press. She and the Greenbelt movement went out to the forest and planted trees, obviously to protest the destruction of the forest. In, 90, in 1991, January, a group of protesters, including Wangari, six opposition, six opposition MPs, journalists, international observers, and more Greenbelt members and supporters returned to plant more trees. The entry of the forest was being guarded by a large group of men when Wangari tried to plant a tree that had been designated to be cleared for a golf course, the group was attacked. Many of the protesters were injured, including Wangari, four of the MPs, some of the journalists, and German environmentalists. When she reported the attack to police, they refused to return with her to the forest to, to like arrest her attackers. However, the attack was filmed by some of Wangari's supporters and the event provoked international outrage. Oh, my God. Student protests. Yeah, right. Thank God. Student protests broke out throughout Nairobi and some of these groups were violently broken up by police. Protests continued until August when the president announced that he would ban all allocation of public lands, which is good. Well, that's okay. They worked. It's so unfortunate. That was in 1999. In 2001, the government again planned to allocate land to its supporters. So basically, he waited, like, it. he waited two years and then was like, everyone's forgotten about that by now. No one cares anymore. Right? These are so 1990s. <laughs> yep. So again, Wangari started protesting this and actually started collecting petition signatures. And during one of this protests near of in a village near Mount Kenya, Wangari was arrested. The following day, following international and popular protests at her arrest, she was released without being charged. In July God. of the same year, shortly after planting trees in Freedom Corner at Uhura Park, in commemoration of Saba Saba Day, she was again arrested. Later that evening, she was released without being charged. In January of 2002, she returned to teaching, finally, and she taught at the Dorothy McCluskey Visiting Fellow for Cons- Conservation at the Yale University School of Forestry and Enve- Environmental Studies. <sighs> so she remained there until June, teaching a course on sustainable developmental focus work on the Green Belt movement. So she was basically teaching people about her movement. And that was, oh, where is Yale? Oh, shit. New England states? Yeah. She left Kenya for like six months. Yeah. Upon returning to Kenya, Wangari decided to campaign to be in parliament again, this time as a candidate of the National Rainbow Coalition, which was an umbrella organization that basically finally united the opposition. People reali- finally realized that, okay, us working separately is not working. Oh, really? Tell me more. Right? <laughs> so 
On December of 2002, the Kenya African National Union was finally defeated by the Rainbow Coalition. Oh, I love it's the Rainbow Coalition that takes them down. And in one of the constituency, Wangari won the bid for parliament with an overwhelming 98% vote. So she got into parliament. Wow. A different government is now going to be ruling. Good things are happening. She was appointed as the assistant minister in the Ministry of Environment and Natural Resources and served in that capacity until 2005. She also founded the Mazingira Green Party of Kenya to allow candidates to run on a platform of conservation as embodied by the Green Belt Movement. That is amazing. I am so glad that this story is finally ticking upwards because... Listening to her constantly fighting against the same bullshit and getting arrested arrested. and penalized and and being in fear for her life, it just, it sounds so exhausting. And then to live it and to decide, I'm going to keep going and fucking finally. (laughs) Right. Well, here's a major tick. In 2004, Wangari was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her contribution to sustainable development, democracy, and peace. Wangari is the first... Right? Wangari is the first African woman to win the prestigious award. According to Nobel's will, the Peace Prize is awarded to a person who, in the preceding year, shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding or promotion of peace congresses. So that's what gets you the Nobel Prize. And you covered the first woman who won the Nobel Peace Prize, right? And who actually inspired peace being a category. Yep. Yep. Who was that again? I don't remember. Shit. We've done so many episodes. <laughs> I know. It's hard. But I love that you're covering like these two notable, notable you know, yeah, Nobel Peace Prize it. winners. Yeah. Between 1901 and 2018, only 52 Nobel Prize awards were given to women, uh, while 100 or 852 were given to men. And that's just not that's not just peace prizes. That's Nobel prizes Total. in general. Oh wow! So this is this is what the Norwegian Nobel Committee said in their statement announcing her as the winner. Maathai stood up courageously against the former oppressive regime in Kenya. Her unique forms of action have contributed to drawing attention to political oppression nationally and internationally. She has served as inspiration for many in the fight for democratic rights and has especially encouraged women to better their situation. That's so sweet. And it's all so true. (laughs) So she continued to work with the Greenbelt movement. And then in 2005, she took a trip to Japan, which really made her become enthusiastic about waste reduction philosophy which was is like a big thing in japan due to like a lot of buddhist beliefs there's like a they're big on waste reduction apparently well they they have a strong like environmental uh philosophy when it comes to like their like shintoism and yeah exactly i mean they have a tiny island they gotta take care of it i i was gonna say there's a lot of people there and they need to be very careful with their waste right so in 2005 wangari was elected as the first president of the african union's economic social and cultural council and was appointed a goodwill ambassador for initiative aimed at protecting the Congo Basin forest ecosystem, which is cool. She was one of eight flag bears in the 2006 Winter Opening Olympics. Oh, shit. Seriously? Olympics opening. Yep. Oh, we got to go watch that after this. I know. She was also awarded an honorary doctorate and gave the commencement address at the Connecticut College in 2006. 
Uh, she supported the International Year of Deserts and Desertification. That's hard to say. It, it is. I keep wanting to say desertification, like I deserts. <laughs> so I don't, I remember this. I don't know if other people remember this, but in 2006, like late 2006, early 2007, there was the United Nations did something called the Billion Trees Campaign, and she was one of the spearheads of it. Oh, that's cool. I, do, I don't remember that. Although I was uh, probably. I mean, a sophomore yeah. in high school exactly. and just like fucked out of my mind. <laughs> so she, along with her sister Nobel Peace laureates, Jody Williams, Shirin Ibadi, and Rigoberta, oh geez, why why? Rigoberta Menchu Tum, Betty Williams, and May Reed Corrigan McGuire. So those are all women that have won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um began the Nobel Women's Initiative. So they've, you know, they formed together and formed that crime fighting squad you mentioned. They did! Oh, man, I want to come up with their theme song now. I know. <laughs> These six women, which represented North America, South America, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, so like they're from all of the continents except Australia, basically, and the Arctics, decided they, they are bringing their experience together in a united effort for peace and justice and equality. So... It is their goal to help strengthen work being done in support of women's rights around the world. So that's like, that's what they do. They truly are the vigilante crime fighting women supporting group that I wanted. Exactly. In 2006, the, the then United States Senator Barack Obama traveled to Kenya. His father had been educated in America through the same program that Wangari had been educated in. Oh, that's such a sweet connection. I know. So when he was in Kenya, they met and planted a tree together in Uhuru Park in Nairobi. Obama then called for freedom of the press to be respected, saying, quote, press freedom is like tending a garden. It, continual has, it continually has to be nurtured and cultivated. The citizenry has to value it because it's one of those things that can slip away if we're not vigilant. Oh, I love yep. that. Yep. So in 2007, she lost her bid to um, retain her parliamentary seat. Um, she did call for recount of the votes in her constituency, saying that she wanted both sides to feel the outcome was fair and that there had been indications of fraud, but the recount must have... Either they didn't do it or it showed that she lost. It didn't say. Yeah. In 2009, she was named one of PeaceByPeace.com's first peace heroes, which is cute. Peace heroes. Exactly. Until her death, Wangari served on the eminent advisory board of the Association of Euro European Parliamentarians with Africa. So it's like kind of a whole overseeing how Africa's doing thing. Wangari Maathai died in on September 25th, 2011 of complications arising from ovarian cancer while oh. receiving treatment at a Nairobi hospital. Oh, I was hoping she was still alive. <laughs> no. <laughs> she is buried at Damn the Wangari Maathai Institute for Peace and Environmental Studies in Nairobi. So she's buried at a place named after her, which is kind of cool. That's fucking cool. <laughs> So legacy, the, the, she has only a few things, but they're really long things, but I'll try and be quick. So in 2012, the Collaborative Partnership of Forests, uh, which is an international group of organizations working for international forest issues, launched an inaugural Wangari Maathai Forest Champion Award which has been awarded every year since then. Also in 2012, the Wangari Gardens opened in Washington, D.C. 
It is a (gasps) 2.7-acre community garden project for local residents, which consists of 55 garden allotments, a community garden, a youth garden, an outdoor classroom, a pollinator hive, a public fruit tree orchard, vegetable garden, herb garden, berry garden, and strawberry patch. So basically what it is is there's personal garden plots and public gardens. And then the personal plots are available for residents living within a mile and a half of the garden. And those plot holders then have to contribute one hour monthly to the maintenance of the public gardens. So it's like you can have your garden here, but then you have to like contribute to the other gardens. Sorry, I am literally cool. writing this on my hands so we add it to our history tour of DC. Yeah. When travel is a thing again. Yes. And so I think it's really cool because like they it has no affiliation with the Greenbelt movement, but it was inspired by that. Yeah. And the the public gardens and these orchards and these herb gardens and stuff, uh, anyone who wants to are allowed to like go in and enjoy the harvest, basically. Like, I was that's, gonna say that's super cool. I wanna I wanna eat strawberries from the strawberry patch. I want right? a strawberry daiquiri using strawberries from the Wingari Garden Garden strawberry patch. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Um in twenty thirteen, the Wangari Maathai Trees and Gardens was dedicated on the lawn of the University of Pittsburgh Cathedral of Learning. They designed it so it includes two red maples symbolizing Wangari's commitment to the environment, her founding of the Greenbelt movement, and her roots in Kenya and Pittsburgh. A flower garden planted in a circular shape representing her global vision and dedication to the women and children of the world with an ornamental maple tree in the middle signifying how one small seed can change the world. I'm going to cry. Right. In 2015, in what would have been her 50-year reunion, her Mount St. Scholastica classmates and Benedictine College unveiled a statue of the Nobel laureate at her alma mater. Oh, that's cool. I know. We'll have to go there sometime, too. I don't know why we'd go to Kansas, but we'll go to Kansas. And was the statue just like a bunch of like vague feminine forms with a tiny woman with tons of bush at the top? Or was it like a good statue? It was a statue of her. Uh, if you guys um, in, don't know what I'm talking about, Google uh, Mary Wollstonecraft statue and then just kind of like shake your head a little bit. I, I know art is subjective, but I feel like we could have done better. <laughs> right. In 2016, Forest Road in Niobe was renamed the Wangari Matha. Math, oh, Jesus. Maathai Road, which is great. And then in 2019, with the renovation of Westerman Hall of Science and Engineering. They added a mural that features Wangari and other scientists in the front entryway of the building. So it's like the first thing you see when you walk in. That's and awesome. that is the life and times of Wangari Maathai. So I have a quick question for you. Was she suggested from one of our listeners? No. Well, not that I remember. Because I I Googled her and there's a website, greenbeltmovement.org. Uh, so you can kind of figure out how to get involved. And there's a whole page about her. And I'm looking, I'm like, I swear I've been on this website before. I don't know how. I don't know why. But I was like, I feel like. Well, if it was, I'm really sorry that I forgot who uh, did it. No, no, that's fine. But I'm just, I'm trying to think of like, why would we have been on this website before if we hadn't heard of her specifically? But that's super cool. And I'm so glad you covered her. And she she's like the OG tree hugger. She really is. 
And I love when you think of people who are like fighting for Mother Earth. You know, you always think of these like really um, delicate, you know, oh, well, kind of hippy dippy liberals. It's like, no, she fucking got arrested. She got beat up. She was being terrorized by the government. She's like, I will not stand down. Yeah, exactly. Like, what a fucking badass. Well, thank you for sharing that. Find a picture of the statue so you can see it. Oh, I I found a picture of the statue. Yeah, it's really pretty. It is precious. It it looks good. It looks like her. Well, I like that she's like holding a like she's holding a tree. Yeah, and she's standing in a bunch of flowers. It looks like there's a tree like right behind her. Oh, that's cool. That's stunning. All right. Who are you? I ended on a high note. So who are you covering? So uh, this was actually going to be my kind of Christmas story because last year you did Mrs. Claus. And I was like, I want to do a festive herstory story. I'm going to go festive and feminist. So today I'm going to be whining about the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society and how they battled slavery with the power of Christmas cheer. I was like, that doesn't <laughs> sound like Christmas, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> if You know what? If you've been begging for a slavery Christmas story, this is it. All right. I'm <laughs> delivering. <laughs> I know all of our listeners have been begging for a Christmas anti-slavery tale. Here we go. Here we go. So, again, I wrote these notes planning on reading them in 2020, so I'm just going to go with it. It's okay. We're one day into 2021. Yes. (laughs) So, in this, the year of our dear Lord, 2020, the United States feels like a divided place from the issues of wearing masks, vaccines, the shape of the earth, spoiler, it's an (laughs) egg. (laughs) But in the 1830s, the nation was divided by slavery, arguably worse. <laughs> so slavery had always been an issue of contention, but the abolitionist movement was really gaining even more momentum and abolitionist organizations were popping up everywhere. So like from day one of the United States, people were like, mm, maybe we should get rid of slavery. And it was always just this compromise at the cost of millions of lives because uh, I don't really want to think about them. But now in like the 1830s, people are like, we really need to tackle this shit. It's fucking awful. One such organization, the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, or BFAS, was formed in 1833. It was an interracial women-led organization that believed, quote, slavery to be a direct violation of the laws of God and productive of a vast amount of misery and crime and convinced that its abolition can only be affected by the acknowledgement of the justice and necessity of immediate emancipation. And they're not like kind of some abolitionist groups took more of a moderate stance, but they're like, no, we need to stop this completely now. No compromise, no slow dissolution like we're done. Now, while slavery was still illegal in the northern states, it's not like northerners were all up in arms about slavery in the south. In fact, abolitionists weren't just combating the institution of slavery, but the apathy of northerners. Because it was seen as like, well, we don't have slavery, so we're fine. That's their problem. Let them sort it out. At the expense of human life, again. As part of their mission, BFAS worked to spread awareness of the horrors of slavery. 
But spreading awareness takes cash, especially back then before anyone could start a blog or a charming Instagram account full of historical goodness. Follow us on Instagram at WAHpod. To raise the funds for their slavery smashing, in 1834, the women decided to get crafty. And this is like one of those herstory tropes that I love where women use something that's a traditionally feminine art to get into politics. What? More knitting? Yes. Is there more knitting? (laughs) There is knitting. There's quilting. There's, was it, uh, cross stitch? Is that what it's called? So spearheaded by Maria W. Chapman, Lydia Maria Child, and Louisa Loring, BFAS hosted the anti-slavery Christmas fair out of one of the members' homes. The fair was pulling double duty, so the women sold homemade Christmas gifts to raise funds for their anti-slavery efforts, and it was like a networking event for fellow abolitionists. So it wasn't just raising money. It was like, hey, let's get together and become more powerful. They're like doing That's the anti-slavery awesome. fusion dance. They're like, woo! Yeah. <laughs> so a little background on some of these women. Maria W. Chapman was an avid abolitionist and member of the American Anti-Slavery Society. She was also the editor of the Non-Resistant, which was an anti-slavery newspaper, along with editing a variety of other anti-slavery publications. She also wrote her own abolitionist works, such as Right and Wrong in Massachusetts, and How Can I Help to Abolish Slavery? Which I just love because she's spelling it out. It it sounds like the step-by-step guide. It's like, have you ever wondered how you can help abolish slavery? Let me tell you. Lydia Marie Child was a gem. She was an abolitionist, feminist, Native American rights activist, and opposed America's expansion for obvious reasons because it was basically just, we want this land and we're going to take it from the Native people and we're going to kill them all to do it. As part of her activism, she wrote fiction and nonfiction, which shed light on the patriarchy and white supremacy of the United States. Now, here's the kicker. You may not have heard of her, but you have definitely heard her poem, Over the River and Through the Woods. Seriously? Yeah. Over the River and Through the Woods. The grandmother's house. No, I meant like seriously, like that's crazy that that, that's who it's from. And it's funny because I think she just wrote that as like a fun little poem for kids or something. But then she did all of this amazing activism. But it's the poem about going to grandma's house that somehow persisted. Stuck, (laughs) yeah. And as for Louisa Loring, the only information I could find about her was on her husband's wiki page. So Louisa was married to fellow abolitionist Ellis Loring. So she was an abolitionist. She's doing cool stuff. Unfortunately, history has forgotten what that was. So the women raised over $300 at their first event, which is over $3,000 in today's money. Nothing to sneeze at for a little grassroots organization. Because of its success, they decided to host another Christmas fair. However... Pro-slavery folks had caught wind of their efforts and the fair success, and they decided to calmly gather their torches and pitchforks and attack the fair. As one does. So they changed locations to Maria Chapman's house. So they went from one house to a different house. Subsequently, the pro-slavery mob attacked her house. So BFAS moved the fair to Maria's parents' house. So they're like, you can keep attacking, but we can switch houses all damn day. Right? Like, we have so many houses, you have no idea. 
To really stick it to the pro-slavery buttholes, Maria decided that the anti-slavery Christmas fair would be an annual event, and it would be for over 20 years. She she almost took their hatred of this as like, a, this is why we need to be doing this. Like this really like kind of fired them up even more. It grew out of the BFAST members' homes and into large halls to accommodate the crowds. They also introduced male and female abolitionist lecturers because they're very, this is a woman-led organization, so there's a sense of equality among the, the genders. Women from all over New England would get together to form sewing circles, which I love, uh, where they would make goods yeah. to sell at the fair. These sewing circles were important for spreading awareness for abolitionist causes, particularly in rural communities. So women engaging in politics, especially issues as unsexy finger quotes, controversial as slavery, <laughs> was frowned upon. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- that's how I'm going to refer to something as controversial if it's stupid, like the controversial issue of vaccines. Like, shut up. So beyond the sexism at play, like I mentioned, a lot of Northerners were apathetic to the issues of slavery and felt that abolitionists were radical. Like, you guys need to settle down. And so these sewing circles were kind of these female-only spaces where these woman- women could engage in political conversations in a safe space. Many of the goods sold at the fair were branded with slogans related to the cause. So quills for sale were called weapons for abolitionists, which I just love. And it made me think of your tattoo because you have the the quill tattooed on your leg. Uh, And pocket watches would have, they they would say, uh, the political economist counts time by years. The suffering slave reckons it by minutes. And that phrase would be engraved on the pocket watches. Which is really like every you have to use this thing constantly. And every time you look at it, you're just remembering that, yeah, we have gambled and compromised the lives of millions of people and it needs to end. Right. But Maria took the fair to the next level by introducing, drumroll please, the Christmas tree. The tree displayed at the anti-slavery Christmas fair was one of the first in New England. It was even decorated with little gifts that visitors could buy and became a huge draw for crowds. So little history about the Christmas tree in the United States. Most of you are probably aware that the Christmas tree as we know it is not originally a Christian tradition. It has been symbolic for many ancient peoples and has roots in paganism. Even the ancient Egyptians used palm rushes in a similar way to symbolize the triumph of life over death during the winter solstice. So this whole idea of using a tree as a form of like rebirth and persistence through dark winters and everything is not new and it's not Christian. Jesus did not have a Christmas tree in the manger. They didn't put the frankincense and myrrh under the tree. That's not how this went down. But the Germans are credited with developing the Christmas tree traditions we're more familiar with today. When Germans brought this tradition to the United States, Americans were blown away by it. So at first, Americans hated them because of the pagan roots of the Christmas tree. But by the 1840s, they began to come around to the idea because honestly, a tree like lit up and decorated is just cool. I don't care culturally where you're from. That's a cool sight. Because of the late adoption, Christmas trees are still a rarity at this time, which is why it was such a hit at the fair. So it was kind of like a a novelty. 
Yeah, that would make sense. As it grew, the fair became known as the Anti-Slavery Bazaar. And instead of lasting an evening, it would last an entire week. And this makes me think of like the uh, the Christmas gift pop-up shows that we see a lot around the holidays. Yeah. Like my friend was selling her art at one of those, you know, a couple weeks ago. But this is all raising money. Instead of, you know, giving local artists a platform to sell their stuff at, they're raising money to fight slavery. However, like with most popular things, the original message behind the anti-slavery Christmas fair began to be lost. And the women were concerned about that. And it's like the same thing with Mother's Day. Like, does anyone remember the true meaning of Mother's Day as we discussed in our very first Mother's Day episode? No. I do. S apostrophe motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, described the fair as, quote, the most fashionable shopping resort of the holidays. And of course, it has, you know, no mention of anti-slavery sentiments. Because the anti-slavery message was being lost in the glitz and glam of the holiday shopping season, BFAS decided to destroy what they had created, putting an end to the fair in 1858 after nearly 30 years. That doesn't mean the bazaar was a failure, though. In fact, it was hugely successful. The Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society was able to raise money to fund their efforts to end slavery, and the bazaar was a great example of women commanding their own political power to exact change in the world. And that is... The lovely Christmas story about how a bunch of women weaponized Christmas to fight slavery. Boom! <laughs> tree! <laughs> Christmas tree for the win! Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so next time uh, your racist like uncle starts going on about traditional Christmas values, just re- remind him that, you know, the Christmas tree is an anti-slavery symbol and a symbol for equality. Just saying. So, Kelly... What are you thankful for? What am I thankful for? I don't know that it's a new year, a new start, and hopefully things will get better. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to feel cautiously optimistic for this year because honestly, the issues that we've been facing in 2020, it, it's not like they run out, you know, they run out the clock and then it's a new year and it all goes away. We're going to keep having to face those head on and keep having to fight them. But I feel a sense of renewal. I think, you know, 20 or New Year is always this time of like, what's your resolution? What do you want to get out of this year? You know, it's time to reset. It's time to do something different. And I'm trying to channel that energy in a positive way. So. I like that. That's a that's yeah. a good thing. I am thankful for uh, the love and support I've gotten over the past couple weeks. Like I said, we had a, a family emergency situation. Um I was really sick. I got a COVID test and was negative. So that was awesome. (laughs) I'm thankful for that. But um, I'm thankful I've had the time over the holidays to just kind of lay low, hunker down and just enjoy some me time and some time with Jared. And I'm thankful for all my friends who were kind enough to get me gifts. I'm very thankful for the gifts that you got me. I'm very excited. And And if you guys gifts, you got me. If you guys aren't patrons, uh, you didn't get to see the amazing socially distant gift opening that Kelly and I did where my pit bull basically stole focus the entire time during my segment. <laughs> he was so cute. He was. And he if, thought if you all listen the to the very, very end. If you listen to the very, very end, uh, my dog barks like right at the end after we do our 
Bye. This it's this cute. whole podcast is basically a collaboration between us and our dogs. <laughs> yeah, basically. Let's say Navi's scratching at the door right now. <laughs> she knows. Her ears she are burning. Like, They're talking about me. All right. Well, guys, thank you again for your patience over these past two weeks. We're so happy to be back and here for 2021. We have a lot more exciting things planned and as far as the podcast goes, this year is going to be better than ever. I cannot account for the rest of the world. <laughs> so please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod. No. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, We're, are you not? We haven't done say this it? in so long. Oh my Twitter god. WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com. We have a Patreon, as Emily has mentioned, and we also have a Teespring. If you search Whining About Herster, we have some sweet, sweet merch that we're going to be posting pictures of soon. And if you have any recommendations for women, if you have questions, if you want to reach out to us for whatever reason, you can email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Well, thank you so much for All listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered year, bitches! Woo! Bye!